Um, I hope you're enjoying this, um, this journey in, um, in John's Gospel. Um, I, just, I just love the way that it kind of challenges us to take a fresh look um, at Jesus um, and to see him kind of through the eyes of the disciple that was closest to him. Um, and for a book um, that structure... Um, is arranged around miracles. People talk about the seven signs. Only seven of Jesus' miracles are recorded in John's Gospel. And kind of, it's almost explained at the end why. They are there because they're designed to tell us things about Jesus. So kind of the structure of the book hangs around those seven signs. For a book that hangs on seven miracles, um, it records more of Jesus' words and more of his claims than any of the other gospel writers. Um, and today's passage couldn't be any more familiar. Uh, if I'm honest, um, I have probably spoken on this passage more often than any other passage in the Bible. Um, it's the passage that I am continually drawn back to when I'm asked to take someone's funeral. Um, I always want to come up with something totally different and totally new, um, and a different passage, and there's lots of really profound passages, uh, kind of about life and death and eternity in the, in the epistles, but frequently, I kind of find myself talking to non-church people, and wanting to be able to put things in their simplest of terms. Um, and the thing I love about this passage is that Jesus' words are, kind of both simple, you could even say simplistic, um, but they're also staggeringly profound. Um, and last week, Mark asked a question of us. Um, what do people think happens when we die? And we kind of had some discussion about it, and there are a few um, kind of theories kind of thrown out, um, and then kind of... Mark was talking about Jesus being the resurrection and the life. Um, well, this passage, more almost than any other, gives us a clue about what happens when we die. This is where we find answers to that question that Mark asked us last week. So I have to confess that I'm probably a bit over familiar with this passage. Um, but it also kind of feels a little bit emotive because the last time um, I spoke on this passage was my mum's funeral service. So kind of that's also just a little bit fresh in my mind when I come back to it. So it kind of, it makes it a little bit different tonight. So I just want to begin by setting the scene um, because there's quite a gap between the events that were described in the passage we had read last week uh, that Mark Gabriel spoke on and the events that Katie has read for us um, this evening. Uh, partly, um, that gap is there, um, and it's John's fault, because kind of John leaves a bit of a gap in the story, and partly the gap is there because of the Church of England's lectionary, which in its wisdom has decided to skip the chapter in between. First of all, there's a gap because that John leaves us, and that gap is that Jesus brings Lazarus back to life at Bethany, um, and then something happens in between. The next thing we are told is Jesus returns to Bethany. 
and John doesn't tell us what happens in between. He just kind of leaves that bit blank for us. So if you were then to read the chapter that precedes this, um, kind of, you would then kind of pick up on some of the other events that kind of the Church of England has kind of admitted to kind of give us in between. Um, Jesus does go back to Bethany, to Lazarus's home, the home of Mary and Martha. Um, and while he's there, um, Mary pours expensive perfume on him. And it's kind of almost a picture of anointing him and preparing him for his death. Um, it's the following day that he enters into Jerusalem and you have to triumph for entry. Um, and then again, um, John doesn't tell us much about Holy Week. If you were to read Ma- Matthew's gospel, you would find that Matthew devotes a lot of chapters of his gospel to both the things that happened in Jerusalem in that week and some of the things that Jesus taught about in that week. And in Matthew's gospel, you'll find that Jesus saves an awful lot of his teaching about the end of the world and final judgment for Holy Week, for that last week before he dies. It's like he leaves the heaviest, the most indigestible stuff right to the end. It's kind of getting serious. He's at the end of his ministry and he's now kind of laying out some of the stuff that's kind of apocalyptic in nature. John doesn't give us any um, of that stuff. Um, so when we get into chapter 13, we kind of, we discover, um, do we, we almost jump immediately to the Last Supper, to Jesus washing his disciples' feet. He doesn't record the Last Supper itself in detail, but he does record Jesus predicting his death. He records Jesus um, kind of predicting Judas's betrayal and Judas going off into the night and he does record Jesus predicting Peter's denial and then that brings us to the passage that Katie has read for us um, this evening which I'm going to spend kind of time reflecting on now Um, what's unique about John I've told you all the things he doesn't tell us It's what he gives us that others don't give us that makes John unique. Um, More than anybody else, John gives time to the last night of Jesus' death. Um, And um, kind of the next four or so chapters are basically all about that one night of Jesus' life. Um, Kind of what we have here is a conversation between Jesus and his disciples, in which he's trying to warn them of his death, um, how he's, he's trying to respond to their reaction to that kind of that news. And then he's trying to give them a bit of a picture of its importance, about the Holy Spirit being poured out and all the things that kind of have to happen. And it leads up into his prayer in the garden, um, which is in chapter 17. Um, and so John gives us kind of more detail there than anybody else. Um, So we have this long, emotional, spiritually profound reasons. Um, And it's because it's a conversation, it's one of the reasons I love using it at funerals. Um, This is a conversation that we are privileged to eavesdrop on between Jesus and his friends. We hear them trying to make sense of the fact that he's going to die and he's going to be taken from them. We hear him seeking to explain it and give them hope 
when kind of they feel like all hope is being torn from them. Um, and, and kind of for me, that resonates with the journey that we often go through in bereavement. That kind of these conversations happen um, either as we face the death of a loved one with them kind of, or with family members as we try to make sense of it. When, we, um, when my mum died, kind of we arrived and she had already was in hospital, but she was kind of very much compass mentis. Um, and the first thing we got told on our arrival talking of conversations, was that she had make it, made it utterly clear that she didn't want to be resuscitated. Um, and so kind of that conversation was part of our journey. You know, the decision that she was making about kind of what might or might not happen next. And kind of there are many other conversations that we're, that we're drawn into at a time like that. And here we have Jesus seeking to comfort his disciples, having told them that he's going to be taken from them, having made it clear that actually that isn't just a future event, but it's imminent. Um, and so he says to them, don't let your hearts uh, be troubled. And I don't think, you know, I, I've, I'd known all along what my mother's wishes were, I was not surprised when I got to the hospital and was told what she had said, because it's a sort of conversation we'd had before. But it wasn't the sort of conversation that I really wanted to have there, because there it wasn't an academic conversation that we might have had over Sunday lunch in the past. It was a, combina it was a conversation with the kind of the, the reality of that kind of hanging over us. Um, it, you know, and, um, and when you have that sort of conversation, there's something that is, no matter how, you know, my mother was 98, it was, you know, she loved Jesus. It couldn't have been more natural in a way. Um, yet, there's still that there aren't words to describe how it makes you feel inside, but you're troubled. Yeah, but that's, yeah, that says it all, doesn't it? Um, and Jesus is concerned for his disciples. Um, and it always feels to me, when I read these words at funerals, what he asks of them is impossible. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God um, and, um, and trust in me. Um, and, and that feels to me like he's asking something of them that they possibly can't give. Um, and then what follows is kind of where the whole thing is, I think, kind of both simplistic and profound. Because Jesus paints kind of a, 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 a picture using words to give them hope when they're troubled. He talks about eternity in kind of in the language that a child can grasp that, but that in my father's house there are many rooms if it were not so I would have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you it, on one level it's, it's kind of almost too simplistic isn't it 
um, kind of, if we were to think about it literally, you know, of all the people that have followed and known Jesus, we will be talking about, a ma- you know, you, know, you don't build houses that big. So it kind of, it, it, it has a preposterousness about it. And yet it's something that we can grasp. And within it, there is this promise that we might not really understand what it is like the other side of that, the veil that is death. But what Jesus is saying is that he's prepared a place for us. He's used language that we can understand to explain to us the unexplainable and the unseeable. And last week, Mark asked that question and made you think about it and discuss it. What happens when we die? And here Jesus is giving us the answer for Christians. That Jesus has prepared a place for us. That's the heart of the Christian hope. Um, And this will test some of your memories. Some of you will be far too young to even heard of this. Probably most of you know the song, There is a Redeemer. Anyone not know There is a Redeemer? Written by Melody Green. It's the only song I think we sing written by Melody Green, actually. But her husband, who died tragically young in a plane crash, wrote album after album of Christian songs. Um, And I remember um, kind of hearing him on tape after um, his death talking about this passage and talking about it with such passion and such wonder, trying to comprehend this whole thing that... Jesus that we trust in for eternity has been preparing this place for us. I go, his death, I go to prepare a place for you. Uh, and for 2,000 years, kind of it's, yeah, he's been preparing that place, Keith said. Well, actually, in a way, he's been preparing it for all of eternity. Because the Bible describes Jesus as the lamb slain before the creation of the world. That God's plan for us in, in crea- it, 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 at the very beginning of creation was this place that Jesus was going to prepare for us. Where, we would, where the dwelling of God would be, would be met with men. And so Jesus follows this up with a promise to come back uh, and take them to be with him. Um, you know the way to the place where I am going. And of course, by now, the disciples are actually completely confused rather than knowing where he's going. Um, And um, kind of, they're thinking in earthly terms. You know, is he going to Rome? Is he going somewhere else? You know, will he come back? How do we, if we don't know where he's going, how how will we find him? When, of course, Jesus isn't talking about going somewhere in an earthly way. He's talking about returning to his Father in heaven. He's talking in spiritual terms, and he's talking about um, eternity. Um, um, Where is he going? How can he get there? If we don't know where he's going, how can we find the way? And it's Thomas uh, who so often says what everyone else is thinking, but is afraid to say, opens his mouth and says... We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Um, And I can't help but wonder if Thomas doesn't still speak for an awful lot of people today who've yet to grasp the significance of what Jesus has done for them. Um, You know, what happens in the future? 
you know, you know, how, you know, you know, what, you know, how am I going to cope with this? How am I going to face death for myself or for those that I love? Um, he asked that question. Um, and Jesus' response in the first instance doesn't help the disciples. But it kind of, it's a bit like that conversation that Mark was talking about last week um, with, the, um, with the raising of Lazarus. Um, kind of when Jesus asks these questions of Mary and Martha about whether they believe in the resurrection. And kind of they're believing in it in some sort of future event. And he brings the resurrection into their present current experience when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Um, kind of, and he and he kind of and he and he just speaks these words: "I am the resurrection and the life." And it's like he just in, enshrines truth for us for eternity. And it does it again here when he says, "You know, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life." Um, and it's perhaps the most profound of all of Jesus' claims. Um, talked about um, John's gospel being based around seven signs, seven miracles. And if you kind of read through, you will see how the teaching hangs off the different miracles. So Jesus heals a blind man, and then he talks about spiritual blindness. Uh, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and in the midst of this, he talks about himself being the resurrection and the life. And so as well as bringing Lazarus to life, who will ultimately die again, he talks about the eternal truth of resurrection and life that's enshrined in him and what he'll do on the cross and in triumphing over death. Um, and so kind of, the, you know, the, the truth in John's gospel hangs around those seven signs. But they're not just seven signs in John's gospel. There are seven of these I am statements of Jesus. And all of them are deeply challenging. All of them um, kind of contain claims that Jesus makes that as a mere human being would be outrageous. I am the bread of life. Literally saying, you know, I kind of, you know, I will provide everything you need to sustain life. It's found in me. I am the light of the world. In the darkness, there's one place you will find light. It's in me. I am the gate. He's talking about salvation. He uses the imagery of the kind of the, um, of where the shepherd keeps the sheep in a pen. And how the, the gate is protected by the shepherd that lies at the gate and only allows in what's good and doesn't and keeps out what's evil and he's saying i am the place of safety come to me i am the good shepherd the one we had last week with mark i am the resurrection and the life and now tonight uh, i am the way the truth and the life and the final one that's yet to come as we and we and we will touch on it later in this series is i am the true vine uh, seven signs and now seven sayings. All of them are potentially outrageous claims. Um, they're all about the significance of Jesus uh, and who he is and, and his demand for us to make a response to him. And so kind of tonight, it's I am the way, the truth um, and the life. Uh, and, it, and it feels to me... Um, this is kind of the most exclusive 
the most all-consuming of those claims. Um, If you feel like you've lost your way, Jesus is the way. There are so many voices in the world today clamoring for our attention uh, and offering us different ways to live. Um, And Jesus says, I am the way. And he's not just talking about a moral or an ethical way to live, but he's talking about the way of salvation, about being the way that we can know the Father and we can enter into eternity. Um, He's not one of many ways to God. He's the way. Uh, And and it's popular to say, kind of today, does it really matter what people believe as long as they are sincere? Um, Kind of, you know, and don't get me wrong, I wouldn't want to be putting down any other religion. But Jesus' claims here are exclusive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way that you can come to God. Um, it seems to me that, um, that truth um, is also kind of a very cheap commodity um, in the world in which we live. People kind of pay lip service to it. Um, if Thomas has an issue with um, where Jesus is going and the way, Philip has an issue with truth. When Jesus says, you know, I'm the way to the Father. And he says, well, how can we, you know, we want to see the Father. Um, And Jesus says, if you want to see the Father, you have seen him. You need to look at me. Jesus claims not just to tell us truth, but to be the truth. Um, We often talk about, well, how do we know there's a God? How do we know what that God is like? Um, Linda was speaking this morning about kind of the the journey of grief and loss, which touches all of our lives. Um, And saying one of the difficult things about kind of when pain enters our life in that sort of way, it's not that we may not, we may stop believing in God, but it's kind of the image of God that we have. You know, is God good and is God kind? Is God generous? Or the quote she gave, which was, um, which was from C.S. Lewis, and perhaps Chris will help me because I won't be able to quote it exactly. It was, it, it was kind of, you know, is God a sadist? You know, some sort of divine, eternal sadist. What's God like? Um, and Jesus is saying, if you want to know what God is like, I am the truth. Look at me. Uh, Carson writes, um, Jesus is the truth because he embodies the supreme revelation of God himself. He shows us what God's like um, and is the life. Um, I love the way that the New Testament kind of reveals that, that Jesus um, kind of was involved in the creation of the world, that God spoke and creation came to being, that Jesus was that word at work in creation, Uh, that Hebrews talks about how Jesus sustains the world. It's like every aspect of life finds its source in Jesus. He sustains everything. But ultimately, he's also the truth of that he's also the, the source of life, both spiritual and eternal. 
those that receive him receive life because he is life um, his he alone whose life is unique in self-existent like the father he's the life that's the source of life for others and so these words spoken and written 2,000 years ago speak into our lives now when people are searching he is the way uh, in a world where um, where truth has been corrupted where people question is there a God and what is that God like he's the truth that reveals the nature of God and when we are left with so many questions about the fragileness of our, of our world and of life um, he makes this promise that he is the life too so let's pray Lord, thank you for the life you offer us in your Son. Thank you for the revelation you give us of yourself in the person of Jesus. Thank you for the answer it's about how we should live our lives and ultimately where those lives lead to in the one that's the way. Lord, would you help us to put our trust in God, in Jesus. When we're troubled, when we're shaken by life circumstances, and particularly by the reality of death, would you speak your hope into our lives? Amen.